0: Well, have you ever heard someone referred to before as a person of faith? Raise your hand. Anyone ever heard that? Oh, they're a person of faith. Typically, it's a reference to someone who has deeply held religious beliefs. They have uh, positions on, on God and on uh, life after death, heaven and hell. And, and so these people who have have these deeply held beliefs are often referred to as a person of faith the crazy thing about that though is that statistically the majority of the population claims to at least believe in God and even those that don't believe in God they still have beliefs that aren't really about science and facts they're they're based upon a certain uh, level of faith in something so everyone has beliefs So that would mean that everyone, to some degree, is a person of faith. But we intuitively know that beliefs that really matter should produce something in our lives. Otherwise, they're just opinions. And while true faith does have to do with beliefs, it's always shown, it's always evidenced or accompanied by some sort of confession or some sort of Action. So what does it really mean to be a person of faith? What does that look like? Well, the Bible answers that question for us by painting a picture of a person of faith. Actually, it goes far beyond that. The Bible gives us in uh, Hebrews chapter 11 a whole catalog of persons of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 is often uh, referred to as the Hall of Faith because of the great acts of the people of faith who are mentioned in that chapter. Now, it's a longer chapter, and we're going to walk through it today, but I'm not going to read it in its entirety. So I would encourage you, whether at some point today or to break it up and read it throughout the week, I would encourage you to read Hebrews chapter 11, the Hall of Faith, for yourself but we're going to walk through it together today and in painting a picture uh, or portrait of a person of faith the text before us today first of all defines what faith is in verse one it reads now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen so faith is confidence and assurance both about present realities and future things. For the Christian, this means that faith is the conviction of things not seen, namely the invisible God. We cannot see God, but Christians are confident that God exists. And we are not only confident that God exists, but we are confident about what this God is like. Christians are confident that this God is all-powerful. That means that nothing is impossible for God. God can do whatever he wants. Christians are confident also about God's character, that God is holy, that he is righteous, that he is loving, that he is faithful, and that he is true. And Christians are also confident that this same God who is all powerful and has such perfect character sent his son into the world because of his love to rescue people out of their sins and bring them into perfect relationship with himself. That God sent Jesus to be born of a woman, to live a perfect life of obedience to the father, fully fulfilling all of God's righteous requirements and then going to the cross and giving himself as a substitute of those whom he came to save so that by his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension into heaven, that they might be joined with him and his father and the Holy Spirit in perfect unity and fellowship for all eternity. Now, we are confident that about what this God is like. Christians are confident about what this God is like and what he has done, and so that makes us sure about our hopes. Our hopes are what he will do, what he is doing and what he will do. You see, Christians aren't just wishfully thinking about the future. Christians are sure of what is to come Because our hope is based on all the promises of what God has said he will do. So because of what we believe about who God is, we we are sure about what God has said will come to pass. And that is the Christian's hope. And far from being arrogant for taking this position or presumptuous about what's yet to come, verse 2 of this chapter tells us that this confidence and this assurance is actually pleasing to God. It's not arrogant. It's not presumptuous. It's actually pleasing to God. And without this level of confidence and assurance, it's impossible to please God because God says that whoever comes to him, it says in this chapter, whoever comes to him must believe that he exists, so there's that confidence, and that he rewards, there's that hope, he rewards those who seek him. So we see that it's not just what we do that matters, but it's where it comes from that matters. It has to come from faith. It has to come from faith, from confidence in who God is, and from hope in what God will do. Or else it's just moralism or self-helpism or traditionalism or -er do-gooderism. But it only counts if it's from faith, which begs the question, Do our lives spring from faith in God or or are they full of dead works? Things which may not be bad on the outside, but they're, they're not of any real value because they're not grounded in confidence and hope in God. People who are confident then of who God is and sure about what will come to pass because of what God has said Their lives will be noticeable. Their lives will prove what they believe. So what then do people of faith look like? That's what our text before us today shows. I'm going to go through some of the characteristics that are highlighted in this chapter. And the first characteristic that we see is that people of faith, people of faith give. People of faith give. Chapter 11 works chronologically through the Old Testament, referencing the lives of various people of faith. We could even refer to them as the faithful. And the first person that is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, the first person of faith, is a man by the name of Abel. You may know that name. Abel is one of the two sons of Adam and Eve that are mentioned in the opening chapters of the Bible. And we're told that, that Abel and his brother Cain both made an offering to the Lord and that the Lord looked on favor with, uh, with Abel and his sacrifice but had no regard for Cain and his sacrifice. And Cain was downcast and the Lord counseled Cain to resist sin but instead Cain went out to a field and he killed his brother abel and that's the first murder in the bible now there are there are a number of uh, attempts to figure out why the lord had regard for abel and his sacrifice but had no regard for cain and his sacrifice and one one idea that people have come up with is well abel gave his best he gave one of the best of the sheep of his flock, and, and Cain, just, Cain just gave some produce. Abel gave his best, and Cain didn't. Bible doesn't necessarily say that. could be true, though, but it doesn't come out and say that. Another idea is, well, Abel gave an animal. Abel gave an offering of a, of a lamb that was a blood offering. Sacrifice, And, and Cain gave, gave, gave the fruit of the ground. I mean, what, what did he give? Squash? Turnips? I mean, what, what, what you know, so his, his offering wasn't as pleasing. And, and that, that could be, but the Bible doesn't ever come out and say that. The only clear reference that we have as to why Abel's sacrifice was acceptable and, and therefore better than Cain's is here in chapter 11 because he gave in faith now someone might say whoa 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 whoa, wait a minute if people of faith give well both of these guys gave but only one of them was a person of faith but the key is only one gave in faith yes they both gave but it sprang out of a different place inside of them and therefore one gift was better It is out of faith that Abel give. And I want to point out something here that shows up in the text. It shows up in the Genesis account. Abel was a keeper of sheep, and and so he gave one of the lambs of the flock. And Cain was a worker of the ground, and so he gave of some of the, the, the produce of the ground. They both brought of their earnings. You see, they both gave what they gained. In the case of Abel, it was a lamb. In the case of Cain, it was fruit of the ground. But they both gave of their earnings. Now listen, there's lots of ways that we can give to God. We can give of our time. We can give of our talents. We all have various resources. We can give of many different resources. But giving gets real. When we give of our earnings, when we give of those things that are most connected with our livelihood, and people of faith do that from a position of confidence in God as their provider and the hope of his reward. The second characteristic we see in Hebrews 11 is that people of faith walk with God. The next reference in the text is the person Enoch. Enoch is one of two people in the Bible who is, who is mentioned as never dying. Never dying. In the Genesis account, we are told that he walked with God and was no more, for God took him. Added to that, the text in Hebrews 11 says that he was commended as having pleased God. Now, to walk with someone is to travel in the same direction as them at the same time. That's one one understanding of the meaning of walking with someone. But another meaning has more to do with relationship than it does with traveling. You see, in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, we're told that God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. Well, where was God going? God wasn't traveling somewhere. God was communing with Adam and Eve. He was fellowshipping with them. So when the Bible says that Enoch walked with God, it means he communed with God. He fellowshiped with God. And what would that look like? Well, undoubtedly, it would involve talking with God. And another name for talking with God is prayer. Faith will lead people of faith, to pray. And not just to say prayers like before a meal or before going to bed or in a case of a severe emergency, but rather to communicate with God, to commune with God through prayer, throughout our day and throughout our lives. Yet another characteristic of people of faith is they obey. There are actually a number of examples in Hebrews 11 of Of people of faith obeying what God says. Noah is cited as obeying God by faith concerning events yet unseen. God said, Noah, I am going to send a flood. Therefore, I want you to begin to construct this massive boat. And begin to make preparations and begin to do this. And Noah did that over decades. He obeyed what God said even though he, he didn't see what was going to happen yet, but God said it and he believed God, so he obeyed. Abraham is cited as obeying God in going to a land that he did not know. God said, all of this land is going to belong to your offspring. I want you to go to that land and you're going to basically be a nomad in that land all your life. And Abraham did it. He packed up and he went. Sarah Abraham's barren elderly wife is even cited as by faith being given power to conceive and you may ask yourself well what does that have to do with obedience well here's what it has to do Isaac the promised offspring was not conceived of the Holy Spirit like Jesus was Isaac was conceived in the normal way That babies are made. So this too is an example of obedience. God said something would happen. And he expected his people to take the necessary measures to produce what he had said. And she did this by faith. Obedience is not optional for people of faith. Obedience is evidence of trusting in God. Trusting in God and obeying God are not opposite each other. Rather, being confident of who God is and what he promises to do should make us more eager to do what he says and not less eager. Praise God for his mercy. Praise God for his grace. God is far kinder to us than we deserve. He does not treat us according to our sins. But sin is unbelief. All sin springs from unbelief. Obedience springs from faith. And so true obedience, true obedience shows up in the lives of people of faith. Not perfection, but a consistency in doing what God says. A fourth characteristic of people of faith is that they value the eternal Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all mentioned as receiving the same promise from God, a promise of land, otherwise known as the promised land. And all of them died without ever seeing it come to fruition. And here's how verse 13 describes it. It says, Having seen them, that's the things promised, the land, and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles, on earth. And verse 16 goes on to say that they were able to leave their country behind because they desired a better country, a heavenly one. The earthly, temporal, or temporary was not their greatest priority, or else they would have lived different, differently. But their eyes, or we could say the eyes of faith, were focused on something that they knew they would never grasp or take hold of in this lifetime. And yet it was no less real to them or no less important. Moses is also mentioned who grew up in the household of Pharaoh, who lived as royalty, who had access to the treasures of Egypt, but turned his back on it all because he was focused on a greater treasure and a better reward. This is is valuing the eternal. But we don't just have to look 3,000, 4,000 years ago for examples of people who value the eternal. In 1885, professional cricket player C.T. Studd gave away his substantial inheritance to go to interior China and live in the face of extreme adversity so that the gospel would be spread to the Chinese people. And one of Stud's most famous statements is this. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. This is what it looks like to value the eternal. The inestimable value of eternal things. Things that will last forever over what's temporary. Now this doesn't mean... That all people of faith will sell all their possessions, give away their savings, move across the the world to serve on the other side of, of the globe. It doesn't mean that. It might mean that. It will mean that for some people of faith, for sure. But what it does mean for everyone who's a person of faith is that there will be some degree of sacrifice of temporary or earthly things in pursuit of the eternal. It's really simply a matter of opportunity cost. It's quite logical. A yes to one thing is automatically a no to something else. You see, we can't say yes to everything. It's just not physically possible even. So whenever we say yes to one thing, we're making a degree of commitment And then we are necessarily saying no to something else. The question for us today is are we saying yes to things that are of eternal significance? A fifth characteristic of people of faith is that they are not afraid of circumstances. Hebrews 11 reminds us of when God tested Abraham by telling him to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice. This is the same son that God had been promising to Abraham for 20 over 25 years. He promised him for 25 years. Now he's, he's several years old, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine maybe. And, and God, God says, "I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac. And offer him up as a burnt offering to me. Just think about that. This is his heir. His only heir. This is the heir of the promise. This is the one through whom all of God's promises are supposed to flow. Everything that God has said he's going to do. He said through your offspring. Through this child of promise between him and Sarah. And God says and I want you to take him and I want you to kill him. And the text says that Abraham considered that God was able to raise him from the dead. What good is a dead offspring? How is God going to fulfill his promise through a dead offspring? But Abraham considered, well, God is able to raise him from the dead. What that shows us is the circumstances may be grim. But we're not limited by our circumstances. Because God is above our circumstances. That means that God's power and God's plan is not limited by our circumstances. And likewise, God is over our circumstances, which means that he's in control of them. They're not happening disconnected from him. And because God is good, his people don't have to be afraid when things look bad. God's people aren't afraid of circumstances, but people of faith also Aren't not afraid of people. Now, this doesn't mean that we think that we're invincible or that we have a death wish. Moses' parents are set forth as an example. The Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had said, I want all the, the newborn male children of the Hebrew slaves to be killed. And the reason he said this is because even though they wanted to maintain their workforce of slaves, they wanted to decrease the number of fighting men because they didn't want the people of Israel to rise up against them in rebellion and fight against them or join their enemies and fight against them. And so the solution was all of the newborn males should be killed. And we're told that Moses' parents disobeyed the decree of the king that when Moses was born, they hid their son. And that eventually, they devised a plan to try and send their son to safety to protect his life. God says that this was an act of faith. And not only Moses' parents are cited as not being afraid of people, but Moses himself is given as an example, who upon leaving Egypt was not afraid of the anger of the king. This is talking about after the final plague, the death of the firstborn in every household. And Pharaoh said, just go, get out. And Moses could have been like, oh, we better hurry up and get out because because the king is really mad now. What's he going to do? But it says, no, Moses wasn't afraid of the king's anger. And they led the people out of slavery in Egypt. You see, people of faith can do what honors God without fear of disapproval or destruction at the hands of others because of their sure and steadfast confidence in God's control and in God's reward. There's a book by uh, a Christian counselor, Ed Welch, and the name of the book is When People Are Big and God Is Small. And that probably sounds like a silly title for a book because People are never bigger than God. But but that's what we're saying when we're afraid of people. And the consequence for doing what God says is right. When we're afraid of people, we shrink God. We either forget or we don't really believe that he's in control of the outcome. And then we amplify people and we give them more power than they really have. A seventh characteristic is that people of faith bless others. Isaac, Abraham's son, had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Before they were born, there was a promise or a prophecy that the older will serve the younger. Then through a series of events, we know that that Jacob, the younger brother, uh, talked uh, the older brother, Esau, into selling his birthright. So his claim as the firstborn to the inheritance. And then, in conjunction with his mother, he tricked his father out of the blessing that would have belonged to Esau so that the blessing was given to him instead. But nonetheless, we see that Isaac spoke things concerning each of his sons, even Esau, that contained good. And Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel, at the end of his life, he spoke blessings Over each of his adult sons. And the text tells us that both of these men did this by faith. Now there are people today who believe that we can speak things into existence just like God did. And they may even look at this verse and try to use it for support. But this has nothing to do with the power of our confession or making things happen just by saying them. But rather, because of who God is... We can be gracious to people. We can want good things for people. We can hope things for them. And we can say it. We can say it out loud. Every Sunday, we close our service with a benediction. Do you know what the word benediction means? It doesn't mean the end, it means blessing. Every Sunday, we close our service with a blessing. And we didn't come up with that here at First Baptist. Christians have closed their services with a blessing for hundreds and hundreds of years. You can trace this all the way back to the Old Testament. The blessing that we're going to close the service with today, Numbers chapter 6, is called the Aaronic blessing. The blessing that God gave Aaron the priest to speak over the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord bless you. Make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And because of who God is and our hope of what he will do, we can speak blessing over people. Another characteristic, people of faith take risks. Verses 29 through 31 mention three events. The people crossing the Red Sea as on dry ground the people marching of Israel, marching around Jericho seven times for the destruction of the city and Rahab hiding spies, Israelite spies in Jericho who came to check out the city while the men of her city looked for them and then sending them off in safety. And each of these things involved risk. I mean, had any of the people of Israel ever walked through a, a huge body of water that was walled up on each side oh yeah we, it's safe to walk through here I've done this like four or five times I know that the water's not going to come crashing back down on us none of them had ever done that before there was a level of risk what's going to happen when we get in the middle of this sea or what about when the people walked around the city Hey, here is a giant city with huge fortified walls. Why is that? It's a defense mechanism. Let's walk around those walls just believing that no one's going to shoot us with arrows or chuck rocks on us. There's a degree of risk, right? Or Rahab. Hey, I am a woman who is not in the most popular line of work. Let me lie to powerful men in our city. Let me hide some enemies in my home with the rest of my family. There's a degree of risk involved in every one of these things. It could work out, but it could also go really badly, and there was no guarantee. But risk is right in faith. There are times when we will not have a guarantee or a strong probability or a likelihood that something is going to work, but we know that if it does work, It will advance the kingdom of God and it will glorify God. And in those cases, oftentimes, risk is right. Maybe not every time or every risk, but some risk for sure. God's people will often have a track record of risks they've taken for the glory of God by faith. Because people of faith take risks people of faith also overcome. Verse 32 through the first half of 35 of Hebrews 11, it's like the grand finale of a fireworks display. You know, in the fireworks display, it's like, boom, we shoot off one and and a minute or two goes by and then boom, we shoot off another and a minute or two goes by and boom, you shoot off another. But at the end, right, at the end, it's like boom, 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 boom. boom. It's just like this magnificent display one right after the other that's what this part of the text is like listen verse 32 and what more shall we say for time would fail me to tell of gideon Barak, samson jephthah david and samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms enforced justice obtained promises stopped the mouths of lions quenched the power of fire escaped the edge of the sword were made strong out of weakness became mighty in war put foreign armies to fight Women receive back their dead by resurrection. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. Yeah. Just wow, this is faith, right? And these stories are faith builders because they show people of faith overcoming adversity and enemies and often the insurmountable. And the reality is that the same God who did those things is still God today. And he's the same God that we've sang about today. And he's the same God that we have prayed to this morning. And people of faith, by faith, overcome. Always, always, often in this lifetime. God still does incredible things today. And even when we don't see it in this lifetime, for, for various reasons that we might not know, that will just attribute to God's mysterious providence, even when we don't see it in this lifetime, God's people will never lose because God wins. And we have overcome through faith in him. But this brings us to the most unpopular part of this passage. People of faith suffer. The second half of verse 35 through verse 39 reads, Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, Afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. None of these people experienced what they hoped for in this lifetime. Not only that, it went really bad for all of these people. But the text says that they were commended for their faith, they were praised for main faith. They kept their confidence and assurance. in who God was and what God would do. To the very end. They did not give up. They remained faithful. You see friend. God is not a genie in a bottle. He's not a spiritual Santa Claus in the sky. Faith in Christ is not a formula for getting all we want out of life. Which means the person of faith has no guarantee that we'll experience the life of our dreams or that things will be smooth sailing for us. I would actually argue that being a person of faith almost guarantees the exact opposite. Because the Bible guarantees that our faith will be tested, as Abraham's was. As God works to liberate us from our devotion to our idols and our love for lesser things. And on top of that, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they're not just going to lay down and let us stroll through life, following Christ into the kingdom of God. They're going to cling to our ankles, kicking and screaming. And to be frank, because of sin's curse, this world is full of suffering. No one should think they're immune to it. But the faithful suffer additionally, differently, because of our faith in God. Mark Dever said at at an event Back in 2014, in a fallen world, some of our fears come true. But those fears lie about their importance in our lives. You see, sometimes God takes from us the things that tether us to this world. And he does this to grow our faith in him and stir in us a greater anticipation for a world to come. Which brings us to the last characteristic of people in faith. People of faith in Hebrews 11. People of faith long for Jesus. The closing verse of this chapter says that the reason all of these people didn't receive what was promised is because God has provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What is it that God has provided for us that he did not provide for them. And I'll give you a hint. We've been talking about this all throughout the book of Hebrews. Do you know what it is? It's Jesus. It's Jesus in his humanity. The word of God made flesh. It's Jesus in his perfect life so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for our sin. It's Jesus Not only as our substitute, but by his death, or sorry, by his resurrection and ascension. Jesus, our high priest. It's Jesus, our tabernacle, the place where God dwells. It's it's Jesus doing all of this for us and on our behalf. And all of these people, Abel, Enoch, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and all the rest, all they had were types and shadows. All they had were mile markers or signposts pointing to something yet to come. 1 Peter 1 tells us that all these people and people like them in the Old Testament, they searched intently to find out about the sufferings and the glories of Jesus, but it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but we on whom the end of the ages has come. These people, the Bible says, people of faith longed for Jesus. And should it be any different for people of faith today? We who have received Christ and his work to make us the children of God, should we now long for him less? Do you know what the next to the last verse in the Bible says? It's Revelation chapter 22, verse 21. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. John the Apostle, later in life, in exile, remembering the death of most of his contemporaries because of their faith, has a vision of Jesus. And he writes down everything he sees. And the next to the last verse in the inspired Word of God says, He who testifies to these things, that's Jesus, says, surely I am coming soon. And John says, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. People of faith long for the presence of Christ in their lives and his return someday. And that longing colors the decisions we make about our priorities and our relationships and our schedules and our finances and everything else in between as we pursue him and share him with others and endeavor to live lives that are pleasing to him and make much of him before a watching world. Do you have a confidence in who God is and an assurance of what's to come based upon what he has said, based upon his son, Jesus Christ, and his death, burial, and the resurrection? If you do, then you have great hope. And if you don't, I plead with you, before you leave this place today, talk to myself or someone who's been on the platform this morning, talk to Demontre, and say, how can I have that kind of faith in God? How can that God and all of what he does show up in my life? And we'd love to talk with you more about it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much. For being such a good, good God. We thank you that you are a loving God. And that your promise is true. That you will never leave us or forsake us. Father, we thank you for the promise of our Savior Jesus. Who acknowledged that in this world we will have trouble. But that we can have hope. Because he has overcome the world. We thank you, Lord. For the the reminder and the promise in the book of Romans that the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath our feet. We thank you that ours is a living hope because Jesus has risen from the dead and is exalted on high and seated at your right hand. And so, Father, build our faith. We believe, help our unbelief, and be glorified in us, Lord. And I pray for anyone here today, even among our children, Would you give them faith, Lord, those who do not yet know you? Grant them faith and hope eternal by your spirit, through your son, in whose name we pray.